This is hell. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show, as always, is Alex Jerry. Alex, how was your weekend? Someone put a dang F-bomb into the 1981 BBC radio production of Lord of the Rings. Really? Yeah, who put an F-bomb in there? That didn't need to be there. How Frodo wouldn't have said that. How was the uh, radio production? It was pretty good, actually. Really? I'm like halfway through it. Crazy. You should send that to my girlie. You know she'll love that stuff. Yeah, I'll send your link. Uh, I tried that CBD stuff this weekend. I was telling you about it at the end of last week's show, and I don't know if it's necessarily working or not, but uh, I put this balm on my elbow, and it's been feeling a little bit better, this TH or CBD balm on my elbow. And yesterday I heard a really, really loud pop come from my elbow, and now my middle finger is in a ton of pain, but my elbow feels great. So I don't know what that necessarily means, but I think it's doing something. We also got uh, you know, our, sto- our oven broke down back in April, and we finally had one delivered. We also had our microwave die around the same time, and uh, the microwave was delivered to our house by Amazon, apparently. I didn't order this. And it was just left on our front lawn. And the neighbors saw people walking by just staring at this box that looks like it's right off the shelf of a store that says frigid air on it. And by the way, getting a microwave with the word frigid within the brand name, that doesn't really make sense. But eventually a neighbor saw it on our front lawn and put it in our stoop so or put it inside of our foyer so nobody stole it, which is a really great thing. What, also, What's the first thing you microwaved? Oh, milk. What? <laughs> Laura heats up milk. My girlie heats up milk all the time when she puts it in her coffee because otherwise it makes her coffee cold. So the first thing that we ended up nuking it... Actually, no, we had to do a test run with some water. But yeah, after that, it was milk. Also, at the end of today's show, I'm going to be making an announcement. We are looking for more contributors here on This Is Hell. So stay tuned in for that. More importantly, Alex, what's this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, you look amazing. What's your secret? <laughs> you look amazing. What's your secret? Want to tell us what the inspiration for this week's question from hell is? Uh, just inspiration struck me without uh, any direct divine intervention. <laughs> I just uh, was thinking, what is the opposite? Of, I couldn't think of anything, so I thought, what is the opposite of something I would ask somebody? Is this the opposite of what you would ask yourself? Yes. It doesn't sound like a mantra that you're saying to yourself in the mirror every morning. <laughs> The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new gray on black. This is hell truckers cap. You can check out the new gray on black. This is hell truckers cap and all our merchandise right now by going to this is hell.com and clicking on support where you can see all of the ways you can contribute to completely listener supported. This is hell without you get, we got nothing. So thanks for all of your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash this is hell radio. You can tweet it to us at this is hell radio. You can email it to Alex at alex at thisishell.com. You can email it to me at chuck at thisishell.com. Alex will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Speaking of which, on today's show, our food system sucks. It's a complete failure. Well, not a complete failure. It does provide huge profits for shareholders in Wall Street. Provides a huge market for all sorts of chemicals that run off into the natural water supply and create dead zones absent of oxygen, which is kind of needed for sea life. It also creates low-paid migrant workers who have few rights or benefits. 
the same time, the unfair market rewards big agriculture with publicly paid subsidies that tilt the playing field away from sustainable practices towards those that are bad for workers, the environment, and consumers who end up with worse and more unhealthy food. If anything, by now, the pandemic should have revealed to all of us that the food system we currently employ is a disaster, and unless we do something about it, the next time a pathogen, a pathogen is released onto the world, it'll be even more of a disaster as the current pandemic, and there will be more pandemics, a lot more, and a lot sooner than we all hope. We'll look at how our food supply works and how it doesn't when facing a crisis like coronavirus when we talk in a few to Helena Paul, who wrote the article, Looking Beyond the Pandemic, Agroecology, and the Need to Rethink Our Food System, which was posted at the website Radical Ecological Democracy. That's RadicalEcologicalDemocracy.org. Who knew that URL was taken? Helena is co-director of EcoNexus, which you can find at EcoNexus.info, including all of her most recent books like Agrofuels Towards a Reality Check in Nine Key Areas, The Myth of the Marginal Lands, and Agriculture and Climate Change, Real Problems, False Solutions. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, This Is Hell, and Alex has this week's Hangover Cure. This week's Hangover Cure is Olives. According to the Insider.com article, the four best home remedies to cure your hangover naturally, the most effective hangover remedies include eating carbohydrates, salty foods, eggs, or bananas. To help, a hang- to help cure a hangover, you should also stay hydrated by drinking water and sports drinks to replace lost electrolytes. In addition, there is evidence that supplements like red ginseng, prickly pear, and Korean pear can help relieve hangover symptoms. That said, the article, which was reviewed by Jason R. McKnight, MDMS, a family medicine physician and clinical assistant professor at Texas A&M College of Medicine, suggests that for a salty food, try olives. The story reports that eating olives can help replenish your body's sodium levels, which may also be depleted after heavy drinking. They give the examples of chicken noodle soup and pickles, which we've also offered as hangover cures in the past, but never olives. So that makes this week's hangover cure olives. I saw prickly pear in there, then I saw Korean pear, and I thought they were the same thing, so now i got to look up Korean pear and see if we've ever given that out as a hangover cure. This is not the media. This is hell. One week from now, in seven of your Earth days, we will be marking the end of summer and the beginning of fall with our now quarterly seasonal summaries, recaps of what we have learned over the previous three months, as we prepare for a new season of This Is Hell, we did these condensations of everything we've learned every six months or only once a year in the past, but those encapsulations became far too long because, to be honest, we learn far too much stuff here on This Is Hell. So next Monday, on what is technically the final day of summer, tune in to reconsider what our guests have taught us since late June. Not that I apparently learned all that much, because it doesn't appear that despite all the warnings we were given during interviews by our guests, somehow I I completely underestimated the willingness of capital to force sports to reopen despite the pandemic and its power over the people's will in getting Joe Biden nominated as the Democratic Party nominee for President of the United States. It's not that life will find a way as much as it's money will find a way. Sure, in the long run, life, but for now, and it's always now, it's money. 
First, there was my horrible prediction that Joe Biden would not win a single delegate, let alone any primary. Biden had proven to be an ineffective presidential candidate time and time again. His 2008 campaign was so exciting and successful that he dropped out on January 3rd, 2008, before one primary vote had been cast. That was Biden's second run at the presidency, after having also garnered zero delegates in 1988, 20 years earlier, when he also had to drop out before the primary, before the first primary. And that time it was over plagiarism, because there's really nothing that rallies the base and brings excitement to a campaign like stealing other people's words and thoughts and claiming that they are your own. Now that's the electric leadership of Joe Biden. With President Trump now being 74 years old, I figured the Democratic Party would go for a younger candidate, or at least one who excited young people and got them to go out and vote. But I was wrong. The Democratic Party and those who had their vote counted in primaries, and you should definitely read the chapter in Greg Palace's book, How Trump Stole 2020, on how the Democratic Party stole the California primary away from Bernie Sanders, which is much like the way they stole the New York State primary from Bernie back in 2016, both primaries turning the tide against the Sanders campaign. But it appears as though those vote, those who voted in the primary voted for Biden in that always failed strategy of anybody but the other person. It failed with anybody but Bush giving Democrats that milk toast campaign of John Kerry, who despite being packaged as a forward-thinking war hero, droned the rank and file into a hypnotic state of what felt like collective lethargy as they marched to their polling places and voted for a candidate who wanted to continue a war that the vast majority of them wanted to end immediately. Four years later, they would again elect someone who was anti-war in hopes he would also end the war, but that never happened. In fact, the forever war expanded. Then we got another Republican president, but this one said he also thought the war was a mistake, and he, too, expanded those wars farther. I figured there was no way the Democratic Party would make the same mistake, try the anybody-but strategy again, which does nothing to energize political participation, as much as it motivates cynicism, and cynicism is no rallying cry. I mean, Biden-Harris self-interest and skepticism in 2020, that just does not sell. Don't get me wrong, that could be Trump's campaign slogan as well. His ads might mention economic numbers that the pandemic has made irrelevant. But what the Trump ads claim more than anything is anybody but Biden. So I predicted there wasn't a chance in hell that Biden would get the nomination, but I must have forgotten this is hell, which is weird because I've been saying that phrase like a half a dozen times a week on air for nearly 25 years. I should have known the moment Biden announced his campaign that he would be the next presidential nominee from the Democratic Party. Mainstream establishment news media was saying it over and over again. I couldn't believe it because I thought it was another Herman Cain hype train with the media selling the flavor of the week, and my guess was Joe's lack of flavor would be obvious within a few days. But I forget the mainstream dreck is now part of the machine that creates celebrities, markets, candidates, and does far too much in defining who we are or end up being at the voting booth. Then I made another bad prediction. I was absolutely certain, 100% confident, that there would be no sports during the pandemic. My thinking was, who in their right mind would want to attend spring or sporting events with tens of thousands, if not a hundred thousand or more, fans packed into stadiums to watch professional athletes pack onto rinks, courts, and fields for our entertainment, then shuffle off into showers and locker rooms where they can 
aerosolized the virus conveniently to all their teammates without any social distancing. This past weekend, Dr. Anthony Fauci was quoted saying that the number one cause of coronavirus transmission is super spreader events, those where people are gathering in large numbers, not wearing masks and refusing to socially distance, you know, like at many sporting events. I thought it was a safe bet to bet against sports, despite the fact that sports betting had just become legal in the States, which means that this sports year would be like unlike any other, as everyone can now bet on any game at any time, even during the game. Your team is down by 10 points at halftime to, despite laying six and a hook. Who cares? It's halftime. You can still make bets. The new digitized sports book has a new line, so you can bet again on the same game, even though it's already half finished. Hell, you can even bet on the game with one play left. You can even bet on every play and who's going to be the next person to touch the ball. So yeah, this sports season was going to be unlike any other. What I forgot about sports is it's not about the athletes on the field. They don't matter. They are nothing more than labor that costs far too much and are disposable despite their intense athletic skills. It's not because of who they are. It's because we are all disposable in the market. Sports is not about the fans. They apparently can do without them, replacing the crowds with sound effects and canned applause, cardboard cutout facsimiles, and video messaging. But what they cannot do without is their biggest revenue stream, the media, television, radio, online viewing of sports, and now betting. Somehow, what I didn't remember was that money talks and everybody and everything else walks right into a world besieged by a pandemic. Now football fans are complaining that if they can play football, why can't I go anywhere I want without a mask or social distancing? If it's safe for them to play football and share a locker room and share the sweat and spittle on the field, why isn't it safe enough for me to go anywhere and everywhere I want without a mask and without social distancing? And they're right. It's unfair that millionaire football players can play football and I can't go out and test the efficacy of sneeze guards at the local salad bar. So next week at this time, when I will be doing a review of everything we learned this summer here on the show, there's going to be one thing I need to remember when making future predictions, and that is this is hell. Coming up, the pandemic has revealed what many of us already knew. Our food system is messed up, and something needs to be done about it if we plan on surviving this pandemic. The next one, climate change or Whatever crisis we face next, we'll also have rotten history and tell you the rest of this week's guests, as well as having a big announcement for all of our listeners. Live from late capitalism, where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy, this is hell. Our food system, like our economic system, is not compatible with crisis, and as we are in an age of crises... If we plan on continuing to eat, we'll need to change how we grow, distribute, supply, and consume food. And the answer to all of that might be in something called agroecology, here to help us understand. Helena Paul wrote the article, Looking Beyond the Pandemic, Agroecology, and the Need to Rethink Our Food System, which was posted at the website Radical Ecological Democracy. That's RadicalEcologicalDemocracy.org. Welcome to This is Hell, Helena. Thank you very much indeed. Helena is co-director of 
EcoNexus, a public interest research organization consisting of scientists and dedicated researchers analyzing and reporting on new technologies that have the potential for significant negative impacts on biodiversity and ecosystems. You can find EcoNexus at econexus.info, where you can also find many of Helena's books, including Agrofuels Towards a Reality Check in Nine Key Areas, The Myth of the Marginal Lands, and Agriculture and Climate Change, Real problems, false solutions. You write COVID-19 is confronting us with our deepest contradictions. The vast majority of the more prosperous among us depend on an economic system based on the ever greater extraction, exploitation, and overconsumption of what the planet provides. At the same time, this system is destroying our life support, resilient ecosystems with flourishing biodiversity, clean water and good soil, the basis for healthy foods, lives, livelihoods, and a stable climate. It also drives exploitation, injustice, and inequality in society, and COVID-19 is, in fact, further widening the gap between rich and poor. The establishment media, Helena, as you know, has been pushing the narrative, the cliche that we're all in this together, especially back in the spring. With that, While that phrase is still being used, and the pandemic does affect all of us, it's just that it affects us unequally. In your opinion, how does the pandemic make us even more unequal than we already were? Well, I think that if you think about countries that have got fairly poor health systems, for example, poorer countries, Africa, um, parts of Asia, South America, those health systems are coming under enormous strain and are likely to collapse. And the people who are working in them don't have adequate protection. Um, And also people are often, for example, indigenous people, often live a very long way away from any providing of health. And so they have to make perilous journeys in order to reach those places. We think that we've got it hard here, but really to imagine what it's like for someone either in a crowded city, maybe in Southeast Asia, or living in the middle of the Amazon, um, it's just, you can't make a comparison. But are all health systems in any way linked? Can we here in the United States or in the UK, can we say, well, that's just happening in Africa, that's just happening in the Amazon? How are all health systems linked, if, if they are? Well, uh, I don't know about linked exactly, but they certainly are facing many of the same problems and being found wanting in many, many respects. For example, there have been calls for many years to increase the number of doctors in the UK and yet that hasn't happened. And now they're really feeling the strain. And they're saying that, that they're pushed beyond endurance, more or less. And of course, many of the nurses and other auxiliary staff are also pushed beyond endurance. So our health, health systems are basically very under stress. And they have not been properly supported in, in the past, certainly not in the UK, which is the one country I can really claim to know about. Um, They need far more support and people need to be much more considerate and careful about how they consult them as well. Is the virus revealing how much we tolerate an unfair and unequal system and how difficult it is to change that system? Does it reveal that that we allow, that we are complicit in any way in an unfair, unequal system that only benefits the few while the many suffer? I'm afraid that I think that it does. I think that um, increasingly in the global north, we have become more and more distanced from the realities experienced by the vast majority of people. And um, I think that inequality is expanding as a result. And people are really not sufficiently aware, say, people who are able to buy online, 
Um, they expect their goods to be delivered just like that. They expect um, everything to be available all the time. And they can't possibly really understand what is involved in that. For example, you've got corporate just-in-time delivery systems which are moving goods around. But the people who are moving those goods are very often in a very bad way indeed. There may be drivers or employees in packing factories. You would have heard about Amazon and uh, what happens to people who pack things in there. Um, and so these people who are essential to those chains are often the poorest paid and the most disadvantaged. I want to get to a question about uh, just-in-time delivery in just a moment. But when you were responding, I started thinking about, are, are we are we currently questioning an inequality we never questioned before due to the pandemic? For instance, are we is there heightened awareness or sensitivity to all inequality, even inequality when it comes to policing because of the pandemic? Does the pandemic just reveal inequality? I think the pandemic does reveal inequality quite definitely. And people have very different reactions. There have been very generous reactions in some parts. For example, food banks need a lot of support in, in the UK. And many people are rallying around and giving them that support. But on the other hand, there are also many people who don't really seem to pay very much attention to what is what is happening to others, and they expect um, everything to carry on as usual. So there's there's a lot of divisions there, but there is, I think, gradually perhaps more awareness of what other people are having to deal with under these circumstances. And certainly at the beginning of the pandemic, this is something I'd certainly noticed, people were very prepared to adapt for a while. I think that people made a lot of changes in their lives for the time being. I think what's difficult as the, the pandemic returns on many countries is the idea that they will have to do that again and possibly again and again and again. And I think that's where the difficulties are likely to arise. What? Especially since, sorry. Go ahead. Especially, especially since our um, economies are so completely dependent on continued economic growth. And for example, in the UK, people are being asked to return to work when they have started working at home, and many of them have found that very positive, and they don't really want to make the big journeys back to work. But many businesses depend on office workers, and so without office workers, they're going to the wall. So the complexity of the inter interactivity between the different as aspects of our economy is immense, and our governments haven't grasped the beginning of it, really. Why is the commodification of agriculture not compatible with a pandemic or climate change? Why does the market not work when it comes to food in a time of crisis? Why doesn't the profit incentive simply keep us all fed when there's a virus or a massive rise in sea levels? Well, I think that you have to look at the fact that we have this huge driver of economic growth and we have masses of companies that are um, obviously dependent on increasing their profits. And this means that over the past 30 years, industrial agriculture has spread massively around the world with many different impacts, whether it's um, the animals that are being kept or the feed that is produced for them. Hundreds of thousands of acres of land and very often cleared forest 
put over to producing feed for animals for intensive um, livestock production. And again, people's appetite for meat has increased as a result of that. And the industry has generated, obviously has generated this response because it needs those people to eat its products if it's going to continue to produce all this meat. So it's like a sort of relentless cycle that we tend to be involved in that um, we really do need to break. I missed my button. So uh, you write that uh, uh, we can live without many of the trappings of modern development. This is what is being one of the things that's being revealed by the virus, that humans can live well without many of the trappings of modern development, but, but, but not without food. To what extent do you think the pandemic is showing us that we do not need what you call those trappings of modern development? Are we realizing how much we miss those trappings? Or are we realizing they're simply not necessary? Because those trappings would seem like a really important part of our model of constant economic growth, of the kind of consumerism that we are supposed to be engaged in in order to keep the economy going. So are we realizing how much we miss these trappings or that we don't need them whatsoever? And if we don't need them whatsoever, that's got to be a threat to the economic model. Well, I think we are still enjoying many of those trappings. I mean, what the point that I was trying to make really was that I don't think we need as many of them as we think we do. And so we think we continue to eat fast food and to expect to eat large quantities of meat and to expect it to be delivered to supermarkets. Um, and when you think of the chain that's involved, the slaughterhouses, the, um, the, the animals themselves and what they go through and what people have to go through who work in these places to generate this. I couldn't help noticing that President Trump was very emphatic that the slaughterhouses had to get going again um, as quickly as possible to keep this machine grinding on because really that is what it is. And the fact that we have been turned into consumers rather than citizens thinking about their choices and taking responsibility for them. Instead, we've become creatures that are supposed to consume. That is our main duty as human beings. What more do you want than a word that just says just that? Yeah, and it's very depressing that we're changing from consumers into citizens, or from citizens into consumers, are not changing. We have changed, and what that means for democracy in general, we'll be touching on that in a moment. You, the pandemic, uh, you would think, would change public opinion on migrants, on immigration, in a positive way, as the realization that migrants play a crucial, essential, important role in the food system, and we would be praising migrants and immigrants as necessary for us to eat. So why are we not seeing a huge rise in awareness of how much everyone depends upon migrants and immigration? Why are we seeing so much anti-migrant sentiment? And why are we seeing so much anti-immigration sentiment when we are now being revealed to what's being revealed to us is that migrants are a very important part of the way that we eat, the way that we live. Absolutely. For example, this year it was very striking that in the UK and in Spain and France, they were missing their migrant workers very strongly. And the interesting thing was that they were finding, certainly in the UK, that English workers just couldn't deliver in the same way that these migrant workers had delivered. And yet, I think that one of the secrets behind all this is the fact that human beings have this tendency to think of people that are not 
part of the same group, as it were, not the same color, not from the same culture, whatever it might be as others, the other. And there's a long history of demonizing the other. And I can't help thinking, I mean, you know, human beings are wonderful, but they're also terrible. And I can't help thinking that um, the pandemic and the fear that it's generated has helped to generate a greater fear still of, of migrants, even though, yes, they're so essential to farming systems. I was quite struck to see that even in India, Indian farmers were missing migrant workers. Um, and of course, when you realize how many of them traveled back to their hometowns in India and China, you realize just what a huge contribution they make, um, unsung and not properly rewarded. But just to go back to the business of the other, I do think that that is an enduring human problem and one that we have to be aware of when we make those kind of judgments. Are the problems with our food system in the face of a crisis or crises at this point, is that anything new? If we did not have neoliberalism in our food system, if we were still in the pre-neoliberal age of agriculture and food systems, what would be different? Would we be better off? Is that all we have to do is just go backwards or do we have to move forward? I don't think it is going backwards, although um, people would, would, some people would say that it was going backwards. For example, it's quite interesting to see that in the UK during the war, um, there was a huge amount of growing of fruit and vegetables and they used to actually collect night soil to, to use um, to improve the quality of the soils. And a great deal of food was produced very locally in the UK for quite a long time. The same was true of the city of Paris a longer time ago. And so there were these systems that had uh, been developed to feed people locally with local food. And um, I don't think that's going backwards. I think that it's going forwards in the sense that if people can become more aware of what food actually is, where it comes from, who grows it, what they go through to grow it, what climate change means for food production. If people can begin to understand what the producer needs, and the producer can also understand what the group of people that they are providing food for actually want, and they can have discussions about what's possible, what's not possible. Um, and people rec begin to recognize seasonality again. That I would not describe as, as going back to something old. I would describe it as very potentially a major development, a going forward for all of us. Just-in-time delivery is about delivering components exactly when they are needed to be assembled, leaving no need for warehouses stockpiling goods because mm. they go from ship to dock to factory floor to the market. Many are saying that just-in-time delivery is an utter failure, when an unexpected event causes any kind of disruption that is incredibly susceptible to crisis and leaves the public unprepared when they need deliveries the most. What do yeah. you think the likelihood is that the market will now abandon just-in-time delivery now that it has been proven a failure when there is any kind of crisis, especially with the knowledge that the challenge of climate change is going to create more crises. And as recent studies argue, we will also see an increase in the number of viruses that can potentially cause yet more pandemics. Will the market abandon the profits of just-in-time delivery because it is dangerous in the face of a crisis? 
I wonder, I mean, if the triple bottom line starts to look difficult, then they, they, they might do. But um, they've invested so much into this. And there are also technologies like big data and um, so forth that are coming, for, you know, still being developed um, for use in these systems, which also enables them to be more and more controlled by just a few interests. So I think it's going to take a while for them to abandon that. Um, of course, if there are multiple crises um, in the sense of climate change events, meaning that production at one end is not actually happening, and so um, there isn't anything much to deliver, or there are other major crises, then it will break down of its own accord. But with the increasing concentration of corporate power in the food sector, it's very difficult to see how it can really shift unless we decide to put pressure on it by basically by abandoning it or trying to abandon it. I think all those things have to come together, but the, the, um, the power of those corporations is massive. It's so much larger than that of many governments and shouldn't be underestimated. You point out that industrial large-scale livestock production is a central player in the food system that we currently have. It involves cruelty to animals and exploitation of people from farmers right along the chain to slaughterhouse and meatpacking staff, frequent victims of COVID-19, plus high levels of climate forcing emissions. It also involves massive production of animal feed, a leading cause of biodiversity destruction and more climate forcing emissions. Crops such as soy and maize, often genetically modified, are produced, for example, throughout the Americas, displacing indigenous peoples, peasant farmers, and diverse agriculture. These would all seem to be very, very high human costs in order to get food. Are these necessary evils when it comes to food distribution? In order for us to feed the world, do we need to have, at least for now, these human and environmental costs? Do we simply not yet know or have the technology to run a food system that is not as bad as the one we currently have? I don't think we can afford to continue with this system because as we destroy forests, so climate changes. And as climate changes, so forests die and catch fire, as uh, you've been experiencing in the States. And without the knowledge of how to control fires, which indigenous people very often have, both in the Amazon and in the United States, without using that knowledge, it becomes more and more impossible to control these events, especially considering high temperatures and climate change. I don't think that um, to continue to produce masses of feed for producing meat is tenable anymore. And actually, if you think about it, for a start, we waste extraordinary amounts of food in, within this system in, um, yeah, in the UK and all over the world. Incredible amounts of food are thrown out that could perfectly well be eaten. There are some attempts to pass them on to food banks, but they're not always successful. And individuals throw away a great deal of food um, each day themselves. So that, that is a major problem, and we could actually change a lot by having a system where food waste was not such a matter of course. The other thing, of course, is also meat is hugely expensive in resources. I can't remember the figures exactly, but beef, to produce a kilo of beef, requires many kilos of feed and also water. And so to reduce the amount of meat that people eat would be a huge help in addressing 
the many climate, the many uh, crises that we have, whether it's climate, loss of water, or whether it's um, biodiversity loss, which is absolutely major due to the production of meat and feed. Why the overproduction of the food? Why the oversupply of food? What does that reveal to you about what the current agro agricultural system's real goal or mission is? What is the real goal of the agricultural system when we're clearly producing far too much food for the world to actually consume? So if we're not uh, simply making, getting, or uh, growing and distributing food at a level that feeds the world, and we're just having this oversupply and waste, what does that reveal to you about our current agricultural system and its mission, its goal for the world? Yes, well, what is the purpose of industrial agriculture? I mean, basically, the purpose of it is, is not actually to feed people adequately or even soundly, because as we know, a great deal of industrial food is extremely bad for people and is generating a crisis of obesity around the world. So the true purpose of, in, of the industrial food chain is actually to increase the profits of corporations. And that's not surprising, because the way a corporation is constituted, um, as was first really invented by the British East India Company back in 1604, around then, is um, basically to make a profit. And when the investors um, gave their shares back to the, to the company and became just simply shareholders, um, the most important thing was to provide profits for them. So we have a system that's deeply flawed with huge predominance of the power of corporations. And I think that really they are driving that. And the reason that people are not taking too much notice of it is partly because these days people are so distracted, they're so, so busy, um, people are quite isolated and have difficulty in really relating to food. I mean, it's a shocking fact that many families don't eat together anymore and many people say they have no more time to cook. And so the whole business of food has been downgraded to something that you eat on the hoof. And the number of times I've sat on a train and watched people shoving a sandwich down their throats while looking at, at, uh, at their mobile phones... That's not the way food should be at all. And so somehow we have to recover respect for food, respect for producers, and understanding of the business of producing food. And then maybe we will begin to understand why a meat diet um, and the power of the supermarkets with their undercutting and cheap food and not providing farmers with um, fair price for their goods and all these things, we would perhaps begin to see why they needed to change if we move from being consumers back to being citizens again. How do we view health differently when we see it as not only the absence of disease? Because you write how indigenous women are also the keepers of medicinal plants and healers, yeah. considering that an estimated 4 billion people rely primarily on natural medicines for their health care, and some 70% of drugs used for cancer are natural or are synthetic 
products inspired by nature, their insight and role is crucial. Furthermore, uh, Indigenous women can help us change our attitudes to both food and medicine by reminding us that health is more than just the absence of disease, which is the main focus of Western medicine and includes how we live with the biosphere. How do we view health differently when we see it as not only the absence of disease? What is health other than being absent of disease? Well, if you live in a world where um, you've got galloping climate change and the collapse of biodiversity, which we are on the edge of, people will realize that their health is absolutely dependent on the health of ecosystems. And to give an even more um, clear example, of course, we are now seeing the emergence of diseases that are generated by our pressure on biodiversity. So the disease is the end product But its emergence um, arises because we are putting such pressure on forests and biodiversity. Uh, Even mosquitoes descend from the canopy when we cut the forest down. So we expose ourselves more to their bites. And um, it's, it's very clear that if we want to continue to live healthy lives, we have to think about the health of our soils, the health of our animals, the health of our forests, and everything that surrounds us, as well as our own personal health, because we do not live in a bubble that can be um, cut off from all of that. You mentioned agroecology, and I'd like to have you define that and uh, explain it to what to our audience of what that is. But, but one of the major focuses of large-scale agriculture is crop yield. And when in agriculture and ag- agroecology, you write that that is not the main issue. So can agroecology, and again, I would like you to uh, explain it to our audience, but can it feed the world? Well, agroecology is really, the idea of it is the interaction between all the elements of the system. That is the farm itself and the ecosystem that it's part of and the people who work on it and also the people who are fed by it. And so it's the the most important thing really about agroecology is relationships between things. And the reason why yield is not the primary factor in agroecology is that, for example, a couple of years ago, I was talking to some conventional farmers who were growing conventional wheats, and they were saying they were having terrible problems with their wheat because of the drought, and the drought was drying out the ground, the wheat was not providing enough shadow, and they were having great difficulty. Whereas people who were growing traditional varieties of taller wheats were not having the same problem, and one reason for that was that their soils were in better condition. And if your soils are in better condition, then they don't dry out so fast. And so you see there are many interactive factors involved in all this. For example, take pests. If you have a pest that you want to get rid of, you might think, okay, quick squirt of a pesticide, that deals with it. Well, you may find that you have to carry on squirting and carry on squirting, and then that pest may become resistant to your first pesticide, so you have to use a different one, a second one, or maybe a mixture of both together. And then the pest will acquire some resistance to that too. And we start to get onto a treadmill, a pesticide treadmill. Whereas The idea within agroecology is that if you have a pest, 
you usually, in a natural system, can find something that will eat that pest or otherwise trip it up, give it a hard time. So basically, what you need to do is to have biodiversity within your system so that you can encourage what they call beneficial predators. And those beneficial predators will help to deal with your pests. And so the whole idea of agroecology is this interactive system where you don't treat any part of the system as unnecessary or disposable. And one of the things that we have basically done in the last 40 to 50 years is treat our soils as a dead medium. And in a way, that's what they've become. There are whole areas of soil in the UK that have no worms. There are large parts of East Anglia where we've only got a few more years of, of harvest because the soil's in such a state. And so this is, this is really, really important. And um, really what we're saying is that an agroecosystem needs to mimic the biodiversity levels. That is the amount of biodiversity and the way that a natural ecosystem functions. You write that the UK also aims to export its research to other regions, especially Africa. The linear focus is mainly on increasing yields and eliminating pests. To what degree is eliminating pests, eliminating indigenous small-scale agroecological farming practices, to what degree is eliminating pests, should we just view it as a colonial, even imperial project? Well, yes, I think I think we can, because um, the point is that eliminating pests is obviously something that the pesticide manufacturers, they want us to think in these terms. They want us to think, first of all, of the pest um, as a pest. It might just be a beetle, <laughs> but it's a pest because it's going to attack your crop, or at least um, that's what they'll tell you. And um, so... Obviously, if you're producing a pesticide, you want to ensure that people think in a certain way and will therefore buy your pesticide. And so it's, um, it is a major problem that this manner of thinking is um, now being exported, well, has been exported actually for a very long time to parts of Africa where people are trying to um, establish agroecology, but they are also experiencing the push for something very different including they've been given free inputs of all kinds, whether it's pesticides, fertilizers, whatever, in order to encourage them down that path. We were discussing earlier our complicity or tolerance for this food system that just does not work for us, especially during a time of crisis. Do we see ourselves as consumers and not citizens because it allows us to not take responsibility? Is being a citizen more difficult than being a consumer? Because I'm afraid far too many people would rather be consumers. Because in your writing, you keep talking about convenience and how convenient food is bad. It seems like convenience is our top priority. So do we view ourselves as consumers and not citizens because we just want things to be more convenient? I'm afraid that that is very much the case. The idea of convenience food, uh, for example, is very tempting to many people. And because they don't want to spend so much time thinking about or preparing food, yes, we have been drawn into this. We've been turned into this creature called the consumer. And what is this creature for? Entirely to serve the interests of all the multifarious companies that uh, can profit from from um, our activities, whether it's you know the, the supermarkets, 
right down the chain back to the to the farmer, often an outgrower for a large corporation, say um, an oil palm corporation or whatever it might be. So, yes, we have decided to go for that. And it's a very interesting thing that um, we call ourselves, um, we say we live in a democracy and we go and we make a cross on a piece of paper every four years um, and we have to choose between uh, candidates who are, you know, given to us to choose between. Whereas, in fact, we should be taking much more responsibility for our own lives and um, really trying to, to work together at all levels to make decisions. It's, it's interesting that the citizens' assembly idea has begun to grow a little bit in, in the West. The citizens' assembly is, is a great idea because it just brings together ordinary people to discuss issues and make decisions about them. And um, sometimes if governments are brave as they were in Ireland, they say to the, uh, to the people, we'll give you a referendum on these decisions. And if you say yes, we'll do it. And that's what we need more of, because actually members of the public are remarkably wise when they're given, when they're allowed to ask questions, when they're given time to deliberate. And they also report that they really enjoy this business of what I would call democratic deliberation. And they come up with very good things indeed. And they are put in that position where they can spend the time and call on experts if they want some more information but they are the ones who finally make the decisions. And that's the sort of responsibility that we all have to think of taking so that we don't simply put a cross on a piece of paper every four years and belong to a party. I think in a sense that the, the days of parties, um, well, I think it's questionable, the whole party system. We may need to try and develop something else that is much more grassroots and enables communities to try and come together to work out how to solve some of their problems, which happens in many parts of the world now. Some of it's been revived. Some of it is traditional. Indigenous people have decision-making processes which involve everybody and um, which come up with decisions for that particular group. So I think there's a huge amount of, there's a great deal of very exciting possibility in grassroots um, democracy and it's interesting that agroecology is also one of its um, functions, in a sense, is to free people up. Um, it's, it's a sort of democratic process to give people a sense of empowerment. And uh, that's what we need, to become citizens rather than merely consumers. It will involve many changes, to be sure, in our lives, and it may involve major economic changes. But I really can't see how... We're going to get through these multiple crises unless we really take hold of that and commit ourselves to the, the excitement and the, and the um, unknown <laughs> of trying that path collectively. One last question for you, Helena. We've been speaking with Helena Powell, who wrote the article, Looking Beyond the Pandemic, Agroecology and the Need to Rethink Our Food System, which was posted at the website RadicalEcologicalDemocracy.org. Helena is co-director of EcoNexus, a public interest research organization consisting of scientists and dedicated researchers analyzing and reporting on new technologies that have the potential for significant negative impacts on biodiversity and ecosystems. You can find EcoNexus at EcoNexus.info. 
where you can also find many of Helena's books. One last question for you, Helena. And as we do with each and every one of our guests, our final question is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. And I think this is going to fall into the latter two categories because our question from hell for you is if things continue on the trajectory that is happening within the agriculture system today, within the agricultural industry and the food system today, if they continue on their current trajectory as they have been going during the pandemic, when let's say we have a vaccine and everybody is immunized from COVID-19 at the end of 2021 or whenever it is in this mythical land that we keep thinking of, what do you think the agricultural system will look like? How will it be different from before the pandemic? It will only be different if we make it different. It's not going to change by itself because there's a huge inertia in the system as it is at the moment because it's based on the idea of uh, perpetual economic growth. And therefore, um, we need a paradigm shift and paradigm shifts, as Copernicus discovered when he um, tried to say that basically the Earth is not the center of the universe, um, people take quite a long time to recognize what, uh, what is required for this. And of course, there are people who are working to make change. Um, and it's wonderful that they're doing so. And, you know, they're everywhere, all over the world, trying to make change. And so I hope that the strength of that desire to make change can really help us on our way. But um, I think it's the problem also is that some of the changes that seemed to be coming as a result of the pandemic look um, as if they may be disappearing again as we try to go back, try so hard to go back to business as usual and carry, carry, on, carry on with our destructive habits. So we really need a challenge. This is an opportunity, and we really mustn't lose it, but we very easily could. Helena, thank you so much for our conversation today. This is really exceptional writing, and everybody should go check it out over at RadicalEcologicalDemocracy.org and find all the rest of your work at Econexus.info. Thank you so much for being on our show. This really was an honor and a pleasure. Thanks so much for being on. Thank you very much indeed for inviting me. It was wonderful. And Radical Ecological Democracy is also a very special organization that has produced a treaty and which really um, responds to all the values that I have outlined. And so uh, it's, a, it's a very special organization. Thank you so much, Helena. Enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you very much indeed. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. Alex, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell, and how are people answering so far? This week's question from hell is, you look amazing. What's your secret? You look amazing. What's your secret? Where's this music? Milk bath. It's a milk bath. Uh, there we go. Okay. Uh, and so, let's see. We've got uh, yeah, responses so far. Uh, Chris L. says, I did look like crap, but found a dusty old picture of me in the attic where I looked great and we <laughs> traded places. Gerdes says, substituting the recommended 15.5 cups of water per day with the consumption of 15.5 cups of adrenochrome per day. <laughs> you wonder how many times we're going to hear about adrenochrome this week? Uh, Wally R. says, a lack of conscience. <laughs> Pete V. says, self-loathing. That's good. This week's quest from hell is, you look amazing. What's your secret? Kevin O. says, my secret is to deep clean my pores every morning using ponds. 
muddy, algae-choked, mosquito-ridden ponds. <laughs> Garrett says, hydroxychloroquine washed down with adrenochrome. And don't forget to moisturize every day. Nikkei says, self-care and self-diagnosis. Greg G says, I shouldn't say it publicly, but you know Hillary is abducting children and drinking their blood? Well, it works fabulously. You look amazing. What's your secret? Zach N says, the Patrick Bateman routine. Jeremy T says, my secret? Basing my entire sense of self-worth on how I look. And finally, Zoe H says, HRT. Patrick Bateman routine. I'm going to have to look that one up. That sounds very scary, though. I don't know if I want to look that up. Alex, I have more of your answers at the end of tomorrow's show. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new gray on black This Is Hell Trucker's Cap. You can check out the new gray on black This Is Hell Trucker's Cap at our website, thisishell.com, when you click on support, where you can see all of our merchandise. If uh, and don't forget, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us at thisishellradio. You can email it to either of us, chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. On September 17th, 1862, 158 years ago this Thursday, more than 3,600 soldiers died in the Battle of Antietam. The bloodiest single day of fighting in the American Civil War. That's around twice as many people to die from coronavirus on the pandemic's worst day in the States. And more than the number of people who died on 9-11, which we have sworn to never forget, but we have all completely forgot about Antietam. Another 17,000 were wounded in the battle. Meanwhile, on that same afternoon, just outside Pittsburgh, some 140 miles away, more than 150 young women in the main building of the Allegheny Arsenal were working at top speed, hand manufacturing rifle cartridges for Union troops. I'm starting to think something more rotten than the Battle of Antietam is about to happen. As a horse-drawn cart arrived at the arsenal, loaded with a new shipment of gunpowder, one of the horses apparently scratched its iron horseshoe against a curbstone or metal wagon wheel. It created a spark that ignited loose gunpowder in the road, which in turn detonated the barrels of powder on the cart, creating a series of explosions that could be heard miles away, all from the single spark from a horseshoe, which I'm starting to think might be a little apocryphal. The blast and fire destroyed the Arsenal building and killed 20 or 78 women workers, many of whom were recent Irish immigrants. Okay, so maybe not the worse than Antietam, but still was bad. Today, the area is a public park that holds 10K runs and outdoor movies. The actual site of the explosion is now a softball diamond. Softball, erasing the rotten history of the United States since 1887 when it was first played at an indoor game here in Chicago at what was the Farragut Boat Club. None of which really matters, but you've forgotten all about Antietam and the Arsenal explosion, haven't you? See? I told you softball erases history. In Rotten History, September 17, 1908, 112 years ago, this Thursday at Fort Myer, Virginia, a 26-year-old U.S. Army lieutenant named Thomas Selfridge became the first person to person in the world to die in an airplane accident. Selfridge was an aviation enthusiast. Probably would have been better if he was an actual pilot rather than an aviation enthusiast. I'd rather have a surgeon work on me than a medical procedure enthusiast. Selfridge had flown dirigibles, human piloted kites, and early experimental airplanes. So when Orville Wright came to Fort Myer to demonstrate his newest plane for the Army Signal Corps, Selfridge agreed to be his passenger. 
Now, passenger, that's a good role for an aviation enthusiast. And what could go wrong? The first pilot ever, and likely the best in the world at the time, was flying the plane, Orville Wright. Wright and Selfridge were passing over the Army post at an altitude of about 150 feet when the plane's right-hand propeller suddenly broke. Wright lost control. The plane went into a nosedive and crashed, while Wright was seriously injured with numerous broken bones. Selfridge suffered a broken skull and died a few few hours later. Doctors concluded that he could have survived the accident if only he had been wearing a crash helmet. Selfridge Air National Guard Base near Detroit is named after him, and I've been there several times. In case you are wondering, no, you do not have to wear a motorcycle helmet while riding in Michigan around the Selfridge Air Force Base, giving every motorcycle enthusiast the chance to have their lives and like Thomas Selfridge's. Finally, in Rotten History, September 18th, 1961, 59 years ago today, or 59 years ago this Friday, I apologize, in Leopoldville, known today as Kinshasa, capital of the Democratic Republic of Congo, United Nations Secretary Den- uh, General Dag Hammarskjöld boarded a Douglas DC-6 aircraft for a flight to the mineral-rich Congolese province of Katanga, where rebels backed by Belgian and British mining interests were fighting a separatist war against the central Congolese government. This does not end well, in fact, in many ways. This rotten history never actually ends. The Republic of Congo had gained its independence from Belgium just 15 months earlier, but its first prime minister, Patrice Lumumba, was already dead, having been imprisoned on orders of coup leader Joseph Mbuto and executed by Katangan rebels after his appeal to the United States for aid had been rejected and he had sought it from the Soviet Union instead. In the political turmoil that continued after Lumumba's death, UN troops sent in to defend the Congolese central government had clashed with the separatists and Hammarskjöld was intent on meeting with Katangan rebel leader Moise Chombe in hopes of working out a ceasefire. Hammarskjöld never made it. His plane went down in a remote area of what was then called Northern Rhodesia, but is now part of Zambia. All 16 people aboard the plane were killed, and Hammarskjöld's death launched a succession crisis at the UN. At first, the crash was officially ruled an accident, but as details emerged, suspicions quickly grew that the plane had been shot down or sabotaged by Belgian mercenaries, maybe white South African militia, maybe British intelligence, or possibly the CIA. Yes, those do all sound like very good suspects in the assassination of Dag Hammarskjöld. Mobutu Mobutu would later emerge from the Congo crisis as leader of a U.S.-backed dictatorship that would last 32 years. And today, after nearly six decades, the true cause of Hammarskjöld's death remains a mystery. If you are interested in the assassination of Dag Hammarskjöld, there is a new book just off the presses from journalist Ravi Somaya, S-O-M-A-I-Y-A, titled... Operation Morthor, and what better way to end this week's rotten history than with a quote from Dag Hammarskjöld? The United Nations was not created to take mankind to heaven, but to save humanity from hell. That's rotten history. This is hell. What's happening on tomorrow's? This is hell. Alex? Uh, Robert Vitalis will be on to talk about his book, Oilcraft, The Myths of Scarcity and Security That Haunt U.S. Energy Policy. And if you thought the Iraq War was all about blood for oil, 
You're not going to like tomorrow's interview. However, when it's over, you will have a better understanding of the Iraq War. So tune in tomorrow for Bob Vitaus telling us how the Iraq War was not blood for oil. We are looking for, we are also right now, we are looking for new volunteer board operators. This is the big announcement that I was mentioning earlier. We are looking for new volunteer board operators here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in running the board, as Alex has done nearly every day for several years now, as Richard has in the past, as Theron does every so often, email me at chuck at thisishell.com, chuck at thisishell.com, with Alex's kid getting older and in-person schooling impossible during the pandemic. Alex needs to devote far more of his time to child care, all of which means we are looking for new volunteers to run the board and interact with me on air. If you'd like to join us here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com, chuck at thisishell.com. This position does come with a modest stipend, so keep that in mind as well. We also want to thank those of you who went to thisishell.com and clicked on support and showed your support for the show. Thanks to Daniel H., Rachel G., Joseph B., Andrew B., and Anonymous. And if that's the same Andrew B., thank you for the flex bar because that is helping my elbow. I think that's why it made that weird popping noise yesterday. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Helena for being our guest. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. Thanks to Alex Jerry for producing. Thanks to Richard and Theron for all the stuff they do behind the scenes. We told you so. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>